0: This is the English
1: Heritage Podcast.
0: Hello, and thank you for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe, and this week we're returning to Richborough Roman Fort in Kent, one of the most important Roman sites in the country. It's a location we've covered a number of times on the podcast, but this time we're bringing things right up to date with new research archaeological insights and a brand new visitor experience and talking us through all of this are our two guests senior properties historian Paul Patterson who you'll have heard on previous Richborough and Roman episodes. Hello. And Catherine Bedford who is curator of collections and interiors for English heritage in the southeast region. Hello. Well welcome to you both and Paul to begin with can you tell us more about Richborough where it is And what makes it so important in the story of Roman Britain?
2: Well, Richborough is on the far eastern tip of Kent, fairly close to the continent because it's only a short hop across the channel by ship from there. And its principal importance is that it seems to be the place where the Roman invasion army landed under the Emperor Claudius in AD 43. But it's Even more significant than that, it becomes a very important linking place between the rest of the Roman Empire and the Roman province of Britannia. So it's a place where people are regularly coming and going, both officially or on business, or just in the process of, of moving across the empire. It remains important throughout the Roman period, even though its character changes somewhat from initially being military, to then becoming an important civilian port and town. And then towards the end of the Roman period, it adopts a more military character again. But it's one of only a handful of places in Roman Britain where we can really demonstrate that people were still living and thriving in the early years of the fifth century, which is right at the end of the Roman period. So in a sense, it's part of the beginning and the end of the story of Roman Britain.
0: Yeah, it's really bookends the whole thing, doesn't it really? It's fascinating and a really important site because of that. If you look at an online map service, Richborough is about two miles inland, isn't it? So why would the Romans have begun their invasion here and not on the coast?
2: Well, the simple answer to that is that in Roman times, it was on the coast and that what has happened in the intervening period is that the coastline has changed dramatically. And that's due to a combination of factors, mainly to do obviously with wind and tide, and something called longshore drift, which is effectively moving material, sand and gravel, and you know eroding the land in one place and depositing it in another. And in Roman times, it so happens that Richborough was right on the coast, at the southern end of a sea channel called the Wansum Channel, which separated. An area which is now called Thanet from the mainland of England. So the Isle of Thanet was a genuine island in Roman times and Richborough sits in a very sheltered location at the southern end of this channel that provides in a sense a shortcut from the northern end of the Strait of Dover through into the Thames estuary. So it's a perfect location to have a sheltered landing because it has this quick route through to the Thames but also because it has a a remarkable sheltered anchorage in the lee of the Isle of Thanet. So it's a perfect spot to land an army and also to supply it.
0: You've been describing there, Paul, how important this place was, Richborough, in Roman times, but it is really important as well in modern times for the English heritage visitor. So moving on to some questions for Catherine now. I mean, why was it important that New research on Richborough was undertaken as part of the new visitor experience that is being presented.
1: Well, Richborough is a site that has been of interest to Roman antiquarians and historians for centuries. An awful lot of work was done prior to the 20th century even. But the most important period of excavation at the site was through the 1920s and 1930s. And those excavations were written up in a set of five volumes, which have been really, really important and very significant for the understanding of the Roman period in Britain. But sadly, as a result almost of the fact that so much was done in the early part of the 20th century, Richmond was seen as a site that had been done and was finished. And very little has actually been done on the site over the following several decades. There were some excavations that have been done. It's not been completely deserted. But particularly when it came to the finds, they had not received a lot of scholarly attention for several decades. And as a result, the information that we had was quite out of date in terms of how modern changes in the way archaeology is done and the way objects are understood have been looked at. We just didn't have that information for Richborough. And in order to make the most of this incredible site and the incredible collection, we really needed to understand it properly in order to be able to make modern properly interpreted museum that would really show off what we had and that was done in a number of different ways. We were able fortunately to get a PhD student to really focus on the site for the full three and a half years which makes a massive difference and get in contact with people working in Roman archaeology today who are at the forefront of research to get them to come and look at some of the objects that we had and reinterpret them for us just so that we can make properly informed decisions.
0: Yeah, it's really in, really interesting that, isn't it? How science sort of moves on and the way that we look at history changes over time.
1: Absolutely. There were so many things that just couldn't be done in the 20s and 30s, so that analysis hadn't taken place. And because of the fact that so much was found at Richburg, this is, I cannot emphasise, the size of this collection compared to every other archaeology collection that I deal with is immense. And that means that when... Generally speaking, during archaeological excavation, most of the small finds, the sort of interesting displayable pieces, are individually published as part of the report that's given. And that wasn't what happened with Richborough. So, for example, there were nine seal boxes, which are small objects used to seal packages and documents. Nine were published. We have 60 of them. But because the expectation is that all of that kind of object will have been published, people working in seal boxes today had no idea that there was this host of unpublished material available for them to look at. And it's sort of letting people know that this stuff is here, it's, has been sort of a big part of the preparation work that was done on this project.
0: Those seal boxes sound intriguing as well, are they made of um, metal?
1: They're small copper alloy objects, often highly decorated with coloured enamel. They're really, really quite beautiful things.
0: And you've got 60 of them.
1: 60 in total. They're not all complete. Sometimes we've not got the top. But for example, we've got decorations on them of sort of frogs and rabbits. There's some that have got really quite bright colours surviving. There's going to be four of them going on display in the new museum
0: really gives you an insight into Roman life uh, at that time you know people storing away their possessions and
1: absolutely even a single object type like that one of the things that we found out was when somebody was looking at all of them is that we only have European examples we don't have any British ones and that immediately tells you something about the direction of travel of goods through Richborough that's just something that we we learnt that we had not previously known as a result of the research that we did prior to the project
0: yeah that's really new information which is really worthwhile and it's good to present that to the new visitors who are going to experience the new visitor centre and general site. How is the visitor centre and museum, how are they presenting this new story then of Roman Richborough with, with all these new aspects?
1: Well, one of the things that we really wanted to do with the new museum at Richborough was make the most of the collection in the way that we hadn't been able to before. The previous museum had quite low spec display cases we weren't able to do environmental controls or security to the extent that we really wanted to and that limited the sorts of objects we could put out and therefore the sorts of stories that we could tell and we wanted to take advantage of what is an absolutely fantastic collection to tell some slightly more nuanced stories beyond the kind of standard daily life eating and drinking sort of things that you can get at really any site with some roman archaeology on it so we decided after sort of a brief introductory section that will give people the context that they need to understand the site and the material to divide it into two broad thematic areas there's one on connections and the others on identity and connections is really about how richborough fits in to the empire as a whole so that's a big empire-wide trade networks but also looking locally at sort of what's happening in terms of what's being made at richborough and the impact that the connection that Richborough had to the broader continental empire had on Britain in terms of craft and technology, the sorts of objects that are being made, design styles, that kind of thing. And then identity is about the huge variety of people at Richborough. And here we wanted to be able to again pull out not just the difference between men and women, but the differences between individual women. So you've got obviously things like status, and the amount of money that they had but there's also differences in nationality are they local are they coming from italy are they coming from germanic areas of northern europe what's changing over time and that kind of thing so that we're making the point that not all romans were the same and we're able to really pull out the different kinds of people that were at rich at the different periods in its history and then we also sort of talk a bit about what happened post-roman because we don't want to just go, this is a Roman site only. There is an important post-Roman history at Richborough as well. And we've got some really lovely objects associated with that period, in particular, a a Saxon sword, that we really wanted to be able to make the point that Richborough didn't end with the Romans. That's
0: really fascinating how all these stories are sort of blending together. And Richborough is sort of this sort of microcosm, isn't it, of the Roman Empire?
1: Absolutely. It's a site that you can use to talk about the whole of Roman Britain, literally chronologically from the very beginning of the invasion right to the very end. But also you've got periods of it as a military site, periods of it as a civilian site. There is really nothing that you could not have done with the collection. And to some, It was a case of choosing what we were going to do rather than being restricted in any way by the options available to us.
0: Well, this leads us on to the next question, really, because you know, as a curator, how does one choose to show The objects and and you know you must have loads of them because you've described already you had sixty of these boxes so
1: this is an incredible sight I mean normally when I'm doing an archaeological display my initial long list is what objects have I got that I can put into a display case and they will be comprehensible and interesting to a general public I may have thousands of fragments of ceramics but it doesn't mean I need to put thousands of fragments of ceramics out you start by thinking about what is going to work within the context of a display. I couldn't do that with Richborough simply because the answer would have been, I've got tens of thousands of objects that are on that initial list. I had to start from what stories do we want to tell rather than what objects can I display. And that doesn't just mean what we've got that's pretty, because there's a lot of pretty stuff at Richborough and obviously we want some pretty stuff out, but we don't want to be restricted entirely by what's pretty because then you just end up with, 60 pretty enamel seal boxes that don't tell you anything (laughs) beyond what can be told by two or three of them, say. So I started by working with the rest of the project team to put together a framework of what the big stories that we wanted to get across were, then identified key objects to go with that, and then sort of objects that could support those key objects. And after that, it was a process of working out practical things. Certain object types can't be displayed with each other because the environmental controls that they need are different. Other objects, I went to the conservator and said, I would like to be able to use these. And she said, mm, could you maybe find something that's less likely to fall apart? But <laughs> the great advantage with Richford is for the most part, I could go to her with objects that I knew weren't going to fall apart <laughs> because mm. I couldn't in- make that initial selection. But yeah, it's working with other people within English heritage to refine that initial list that for what's going to work from an interpretation point of view, from a design point of view, from a conservation point of view. And there are certain objects that have not gone out that I would love to have been able to display, but for various practical reasons, just couldn't be. So it's very much a give and take. And I'm, I'm happy with the selection that we've got. But as I say, there's always some things that you just go, oh, I wish I could have put that into, and it didn't work for some reason.
0: Is there something that you would have really liked to have included that isn't there?
1: As an example, we've got a couple of lovely um, bone decorations for cavalry harnesses, and that would have been wonderful to be able to put in with objects that we've got relating to soldiers, but I couldn't put bone into that display case because bone needs to be kept at a higher level of humidity than iron and metal, and pretty much everything else related to soldiers was iron, so I just couldn't put bone into that case or it would have started to collapse.
0: This is something that the visitors doesn't really appreciate, do they, when they visit a a site and a a museum and and look at a display case. There's so much thought that goes into what is presented and and there are genuine reasons.
1: Always. There are so many things hiding away in storerooms that can't go out for one reason or another. And a lot of the time those reasons that they can't go out are are very, very genuine reasons that are about protecting the objects. And another time in another display they could go out. We just have to make a different set of decisions for that to happen.
0: So what sort of work has gone on behind the scenes to ensure that these finds are shown in their best light?
1: Well, our conservator has done a lot of work on this collection. We've had certain objects reconstructed. She's glued things back together for us so that you can see them in their complete state. For example, we've got a lovely glass bowl that's going out whole, which the first time I saw it was in a dozen pieces in a cardboard box. And She's sort of cleaned things up and cleaned off old glue marks from it, so it looks absolutely lovely now. We've also, as part of the preparation work that was done with research, we've repacked the collection into better storage. That will allow us to work with it in future in a way that means it won't be damaged. We've photographed everything. So when we've got researchers coming to us now, we can show photographs of all of the objects, which makes work on the collection in the future much more easy. So this is a project that's had a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes. I've been working on this from a collections point of view since 2016 in terms of the research and the packing and the conservation work. There's a lot been going on.
0: This episode is almost like a Richborough Roman fort plus, you know, what's it like to work several years on a project sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, we're getting a real insight into what your job involves, Catherine. What else can visitors experience now that is different from the previous exhibition that was on at Richborough?
1: So as well as dramatically improving the visitor experience within the museum, we've also made some substantial alterations to what the site visit is going to involve for visitors. So in particular, that's around, there's going to be a new reconstructed gateway on the main Richborough site that people will think of who've been to Richborough before, but also they're going to get access to the amphitheatre, which they didn't previously get to see.
0: Ah, yes. And of course, this leads us into talking to Paul again about the defensive gateway. Paul, can you tell us a bit more about the purpose of Richborough's defensive gateway and also how it would have looked, because some people obviously might not have visited the site yet and, and will like
2: to. Yes, of course, it's quite a big thing to get your head around when you go there today. Catherine mentioned the excavations that took place in the 1920s and 1930s. Well, that was the occasion where they actually found the remains of this fortification first. And it comprised, it seems, a double parallel line of ditches running for about 600 meters almost straight across what had been a little island on which richborough was situated you recall i described it as being at the southern end of this wandsome channel well it was actually on a small island richborough and these ditches traversed the island from one side to the other in order to i suppose create a safe area on the seaward side for the landing and beaching of ships and the soldiers to disembark and for them to bring in and compound supplies. Now, it's a defensive fortification defined by these ditches and presumably with a rampart as well. So that if necessary, you know, the beachhead could be protected. But of course, they have to have ability to get in and out. And so this gateway stood more or less at the center point of this fortification. And it comprised a timber tower over a gate passage. And the timber tower acted both as a place of lookout, but also, if necessary, uh, a place where, you know, soldiers could defend the entrance against anybody trying to get in. So it's a timber structure, and it, it would have been fairly tall, and it would have stood within an earth rampart, which itself had a parapet going all the way along it. So the full extent of this rampart could have been manned by soldiers. And then outside it, this double V-shaped ditch, which is a further barrier to people trying to get inside the defended compound.
0: How big was this gateway then? How how tall?
2: Right, well, we're in the realms of, of reconstruction now. Uh, so obviously there is a little bit of interpretation going on here. But what we knew from the excavations in the 1920s was that The gateway itself appeared to be about 3.4 meters across the gate passage, as it were, going through the rampart, and about the same length. So in plan, the tower above the gateway would have been about three and a half meters square. Now, then we had to try and estimate how tall it was. And for that, we use logic. So if you're wanting to go through a gateway as a, a marching Roman soldier or Perhaps as a a Roman cavalryman, the gateway obviously has to be a certain height so that you can ride through it on your horse. So that determines the height of the gateway itself with a little bit of clearance. And then above that, presumably there is a, a fighting platform at the level of the rampart so you can walk right across the rampart and across the gate passage. And then above that again, another second floor, if you like, from which you can see both far out to sea and far inland. And so from that, we came up with a likely figure for how big this structure would have stood in the landscape. And we think if you were standing on the gateway, above the gateway in Roman times, you'd have been standing just over seven meters above the ground. And the structure itself would be in a maximum of eight meters tall. So it's it's quite a big structure.
0: So let's translate for some of our North American listeners who depend (laughs) on um, Imperial. I'm saying 11 feet square in plan, and uh, according to the online converter, it's about 26 feet tall. So that's a decent height. I suppose for anyone who's familiar with um, follies in the landscape, it might be something a bit like that, a little, little tower.
2: Yes, except that you have to remember that the rampart on either side of it abuts on both sides, so the actual projection of the tower above the rampart makes it more integrated as it were. It doesn't stand alone in the way that a folly stands alone.
0: But um, height-wise, perhaps fairly similar?
2: Yes, well, so, so, some some follies are even higher than that, aren't they? But yes, I get your point.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. And there's been some excavation work uh, where this gateway was located. Why was this done and what did you find?
2: Yes, well, it had been excavated before. And what those excavators found in the 1920s and early 1930s was the ground plan of the gateway. And that exposed itself through six large pits that had been dug into the ground in order to construct or to place the timber uprights which formed the framework of this wooden tower. And in three instances, they could see the impression of where the actual timbers had been. So from that, they knew that the main structural uprights which supported this tower were about 12 inches square. So that's a a fairly substantial piece of timber. So we had the ground plan. However... Because the excavation was so long ago, we wanted to be sure that they hadn't made any errors in the interpretation of the features. Because, after all, Richborough had been occupied for another 350 years after this structure was long gone and leveled. And we wanted to be sure that they weren't misinterpreting features that had been established on the site after the invasion period. And so we opened up a trench early in. 2020, actually just before COVID in fact, to try and check the findings of the 1920s and 1930s excavations and successfully located the same features that they'd exposed during that earlier excavation. And so we could be confident because we re-excavated them, we could be confident that their conclusions about what these features were were actually correct. And that gave us a firm basis on which to think, well, yeah, we think we can probably reconstruct this gateway with a fair degree of confidence.
0: Yes, and of course, you have now created this new wooden structure, or English Heritage and its uh, specialist carpenters have, um, that visitors can now climb, that simulates this Claudian gateway. So, apart from creating a good lookout point Um, if you're pretending to be a Roman soldier, if you're a child, I suppose, or or a big kid. What was the idea behind creating this uh, wooden structure?
2: Well, actually, you jest, but that is one of the principal reasons, uh, which I'll explain in a minute why we have done this. But obviously, previously, before we reconstructed this gateway, when you went to site, you didn't get any real impression of what the Claudian period and this great invasion of Britain you know, how it manifests itself at at Richborough. There was two short stretches of these defensive ditches that I mentioned earlier that you could see and the gap in the rampart where the gateway had been. But it was very difficult, even with vivid imagination, to understand what it was like. So we wanted to give people a real impression of what this structure was like in order to give Richborough back something of its immense significance at the beginning of the Roman conquest of Britain. So that was number one. The second reason is that when you go to Richborough today, the excavations of the 1920s and 30s had exposed Roman remains from several different episodes during its life. And they, they are somewhat fortuitously contained within the wall of a Roman fort that was built in the late third century. So the impression is given that everything that you see inside that wall belongs to that Roman fort of the late third century, which in fact, it doesn't. So there are things that you can see that are 100 years earlier, and there are things that you can see that are 100 years later. So the whole thing is confusing as a visit. So what we wanted to do as the second reason for building this structure is to give people an elevated platform that they could look down on the rest of the site, And we could explain it to them much more successfully because you get this bird's eye view of the whole site and we could break it down into its elements and explain how richborough had developed through time
0: people are literally seeing the layers of time
2: in fact that is exactly it they're seeing the layers of time that were exposed by archaeologists almost 100 years ago and they can decipher what went on there much more successfully than they could previously
0: and how does this wooden structure appear? Does it look kind of like a tower or is it quite sort of skeletal, almost like something that would be in a treehouse or something? Uh, how, how would you describe it?
2: Yes, I think, I think skeletal is probably a good word. Obviously, it's made of pretty substantial timbers. So what you have, you have four timbers at the corners which stand as the main verticals. And these are connected at first floor level and second floor level by horizontal timbers forming the floors. And so the floors are solid, but the sides are open and they are connected, the sides are connected to the uprights by balustrades, some of which are defended by planking, which forms a kind of crenellated parapet so that you can imagine, for instance, a a medieval castle with its crenellations. It looks a bit like that only in timber, so it can be defended. But I suppose you would describe it as a semi-open structure of timber that does have a kind of uh, a framework appearance, yeah.
0: And as you're experiencing this, if you're climbing up it and going onto the first floor, going onto the second floor, are there panels, information panels, where you can read about the actual structure that you're standing in?
2: Yes, that's correct. So on the very top level, when you've made the climb to the top, there are panels looking in two directions to explain exactly what you're looking, looking down on. Uh, In fact, we've put a whole new panel scheme right across the whole site as well to augment that. So the whole visit to Richborough as a result of this project will be much more understandable for all our visitors.
0: Are you quite confident about um, the way the gateway would have looked like in Roman times? And how did you come to that conclusion?
2: Yes, I think we are fairly confident. Obviously, we have the ground plan, which gives us a good start. And there have been Roman gateways like this excavated elsewhere in Britain and across the northern parts of the Roman Empire on many occasions so what you get is a is a repeating pattern of these grand plans they're not all the same some of them are simpler as some of them are more complex but they are readable also in some places where preservation is particularly good you actually get timbers preserved in situ so you get a, a higher degree of confidence about what these structures would have looked like But I suppose the the most significant element in this is the three-dimensional look. It's all right to understand what they look like in plan, but what did they look like in elevation when you look at them from the side? And the clues there were contained in Rome itself, actually, in a monument called Trajan's Column, which is this immense stone column which is decorated on the outside with a continuous frieze which depicts the campaign's of the emperor trajan in dacia which is basically modern romania in the early part of the 2nd century and this column depicts in infinite detail the whole working of this military campaign you know not just the fighting but the supply the building every aspect you can possibly imagine and included in stone in these these sculptural reliefs on trajan's column are depictions of roman ramparts and roman gateways. And you can see quite clearly how these structures were built right down to the, the individual timbers, if you like. So we are fairly confident in what it would have looked like. Obviously, small details, we can't get them all right. But in its general appearance, we think we've got it right.
0: And the reconstruction is just a basic representation of this original structure. So how did English heritage go about building the reconstruction? Uh, Presumably, you had to find uh, some carpenters or people who are experts in woodwork.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, before we get to the carpenters, we have to design it and we have to draw it. And so on the whole project, we had a project architect who worked with myself and others on trying to integrate the evidence from Roman archaeology and from things like Trajan's Column into a drawing. What did this thing look like? And what information can we give the carpenters, in order to construct this. That was effectively the first stage. And then we had to really break it down into, well, how are we going to build this tower? What joint types did Roman carpenters use? What tools did they use? How did they join? How did they secure the structure together? So we had to gather information where we had it for surviving Roman timber work. And it so happens that there's quite a lot of preserved Roman timber from Roman London. And so we were able to provide the carpenters with illustrations and drawings of what Roman joints were like and and how they put uh, timber structures together. Very, very fortuitously and very happily, there was a company locally in Broadstairs who were actually involved in the construction of another similar Roman structure in North Wales. In fact, they were in the closing stages of doing it. So they came equipped with some knowledge already, having almost had a dry run on this this site in North Wales. And so we were able to combine really effectively in order to decide through a combination of, well, this is what the Roman evidence says, and these are the practicalities. Practicalities are very important. And of course, all joint types don't suit certain types of locations on a structure. And so we went through this iterative process of deciding what, the best construction would be for the timber gate and the results are really spectacular when you see it today it's quite remarkable when you when you're up close to it and looking in detail at the construction the craftsmanship is quite remarkable it's a really beautiful structure
0: perhaps we're being wrong by using the word reconstruction and it's more closer to a replica
2: my preferred word is simulation because we can't know exactly what the structure looked like to its finest detail so we're doing our best to produce a simulation of what it would have been like that's my preferred term yeah reconstruction implies or replica implies that you're doing it exactly as the romans would have done it but we're not doing that and also we we have to be aware that we can't do everything as the romans would have done because you know we are subject to modern building controls and building regulations, and health and safety. And so we've had to do some things that the Romans clearly would never have done in order to make the structure safe for our visitors to climb and to look down from. And that in itself was a a very complicated process. Not so much in in relation to the gateway, but we've constructed a length of rampart on either side of the gateway. And that was uh, particularly trying, because the Romans would have built a rampart out of turf, and soil. And they were very accomplished builders in turf. But of course, we can't do that because it's regarded not as a stable material. And so we had to come up with an engineering solution to how we would build the rampart.
0: That's really interesting, actually. That gives, I think, listeners another insight into how much labour has gone into making just this structure as close to realistic as possible.
2: Yes, it's it's like Catherine was saying, and you picked upon the, the amount of work that goes behind the scenes in the preparation of a of an exhibition or a museum. It's the same for this. There's an enormous amount of thought that's gone into how we build this structure, yet keep it looking as it would have looked in Roman times.
0: One of the questions that people are probably thinking right now is: Okay, so where is it sited? Is it sited near the original location, or
2: no? It's exactly on the spot of the original location. Right. So So that doesn't
0: that doesn't affect anything underneath the ground?
2: No. What we have done is obviously we re-excavated the post halls where the gate main timbers had been, and we have basically put a layer in between so that there's no structural elements of the new tower penetrating the Roman archaeology. So the new tower instead of being anchored far into the ground by these huge posts as the roman structure was the posts that we have used to build the main structural limbs tower actually sit on a concrete raft which is buried and you can't see it so it actually it floats if you like on the roman ground surface but doesn't disturb it
0: ah very good yes uh, there are a lot of archaeologists listening right now so they are reassured that it's yeah, all i hope so protected As if that wasn't enough of an attraction, you know, we've got the Richborough Roman Amphitheatre, which was on site. Just before we talk about that in more detail, whereabouts was it on
2: the site? Okay, so when you go to the site today, you concentrate your visit because the museum is located quite close to this third century fort that I mentioned earlier, the walls of which very largely survive to a, a very tall height. And so when you go there, what you don't appreciate is that that part of Roman Richborough is only a small part of Roman Richborough, which was, in effect, a substantial Roman town that covered something like 21 hectares. So it's something like six or 700 metres north to south, maybe 500 metres east to west. And this would have been a, a complex of roads and streets with lots and lots of buildings in the normal manner of a Roman town. So your visit is confined to a small part of it, towards the northeastern side of this roman town at the southwestern side something like 500 meters distance from you know where you log in to get your ticket today is the site of the roman amphitheater and this is on the southwestern edge of the roman town as it would have been and today it's just a pasture field but it's got an interesting earthwork in it which happens to be the leveled remains of the roman amphitheater which would have served the people of Roman Richborough.
0: Again, just looking at the uh, conversion of um, hectares to acres, it's about 51 acres, which is um, a pretty sizable place.
2: Yes, it is. And it occupies most of that tiny little island that I was telling you about in Roman times, which obviously is no longer island anymore, but it would have virtually filled the little island.
0: And what archaeological excavations of the amphitheatre have taken place?
2: The amphitheatre was explored once before in 1849 by a local antiquary from Sandwich called William Rolfe. So we knew a little bit about it, but we didn't know a lot about it. And one of the aims of this project, as I think Catherine said at the beginning, was that we needed new information about Richborough in order to move the story on, because the story that we have hitherto is very much one that was generated in the 1920s and 1930s. And so we thought we would like to look in a completely different location to do some small scale excavation in order to get fresh data. And aerial surveys and geophysical surveys indicated that there was an interesting location right next to the amphitheater where we thought there was evidence of settlement right hard up against the amphitheatre and maybe even had been taken out when the amphitheatre was constructed. And so this was a perfect opportunity to look both at the amphitheatre itself and any evidence for settlement immediately next to it, because we would get some, hopefully, some interesting information on the relative dating of those structures. And it would also say something more about the archaeology and development of the richborough Roman town as a whole because this is the first time that excavation would have taken place at the southern end, as opposed to the northern end of the Roman town.
0: Was it the summer of uh, 2021? Is that right? Or
2: the autumn? We started in September and we went through into cold and wet November.
0: <laughs> but um, a productive, you know, season of digging. And oh yes. What were the findings?
2: The exploration was deliberately limited because, like the main site at Richborough, it's a scheduled ancient monument, so we have to have a special permission from historic England and we have to have clearly defined goals. And so one of those goals was basically to understand more of the structure of the Roman amphitheater that had been hinted at by the excavations in 1849. And we also wanted to know what condition the remains were in because that wasn't clear from the 1849 excavation report. But having said that, even though it was a a limited exploration in terms of area, the results were fantastic because we absolutely nailed what this amphitheater would have looked like in, in Roman times. And so what we discovered was the arena wall of the amphitheater, which still survived to about a meter, a meter 20. That wall obviously separated the arena where people would have been performing, if you like from the audience, and it would have been much taller. It probably would have been about two and a half meters tall originally, but we were surprised that it survived to such a height, especially considering it was actually constructed from chalk. So the nearest source of any kind of rock is a few miles away, and it's a soft rock, and it's in fact chalk. So that's what they used to build the amphitheater wall. And they the the wall in render, a cement render, and then miraculously, we discovered that there were fragments of paint still adhering to, to the amphitheater wall, to the arena wall. So although we weren't able to conclusively demonstrate what was depicted on the wall, we were able to show that the arena wall was decorated and it was divided up into a series of panels by vertical and horizontal stripes within which there would have been either some kind of figurative scene maybe even a scene of gladiators or hunting beasts or something like that. Or sometimes they would decorate it geometrically, sometimes to simulate marble or sometimes with a a geometric pattern. But the survival of fragments of paint in the confined area that we looked at in the excavation gave us confidence that the rest of the perimeter, which we didn't excavate, might actually have some really important evidence surviving for future archaeologists to find.
0: So what's left of this surviving wall is just under four feet tall, uh, 1.2 metres, about 3.9 feet. Yeah. And you think it would have been, what, twice as tall as that?
2: That That's correct, yeah. That's correct. Right. But the arena itself is about 65 metres across because it's a it's a, an oval shape, about 65 metres by 55 metres. So it's quite a big area within which shores would have been happening. The other surprise was that we discovered a small chamber similarly built from these chalk blocks. But we believed, because it was blind-ended, so it it doesn't have another exit, it's only got an exit onto the arena, that this may have been something called a carcer, which was, in fact, an area where either people or wild animals would have been confined prior to being let loose into the arena. So this was closed off by a door, which we could see the rebates and the lintel, sorry, the, uh, the threshold for the door, and presumably would have been one of these doors that was operated from above, raised, and so then you're let into the arena for whatever fate awaited you. The final little surprise was we were looking for the outside wall. So in other words, we'd found the arena wall and there would have been an outside wall of the amphitheater, between which would have been the bank where everybody sat on. And it turned out that the external wall was actually made from turf. You recall that I mentioned that the Romans would have built their ramparts of turf at the time of the Claudian invasion. Well, they were also building at at some point in time at Richborough the outer wall of the amphitheater in turf as well. And these turfs were absolutely remarkably preserved. You could actually see them. They'd been compressed by time, but you could see the lines that separated where these turves had been stacked. And so we're very hopeful that, having taken lots of samples from these turves, that we're going to get some interesting information about the environment of Roman Richborough at the time that the amphitheater was built.
0: Wow, that would really give us lots of information, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, How has discovering all these things during the later period of 2021 altered English Heritage's knowledge of Richborough?
2: This is an interesting but slightly complex question, but what it has done, obviously we we know a lot more about the Roman amphitheatre now, how it was built. It suggests to us, because of the temporary nature of the materials that were used, so local chalk blocks not transported very far, turf presumably dug locally to build the outer bank, not transported very far, that this may actually be an early amphitheatre. So as the Roman period progressed in Britain, buildings tend to become more permanent as they exploit sources of stone, build kilns to build brick and tile. Yet here we have a situation at Richborough where they're building a substantial structure with fairly temporary materials. So that tends to suggest to us that it's an early amphitheatre and it may well have been built towards the end of the first century A.D., so you know, only 50 or 60 years after the invasion, or perhaps into the early second century. And it's probably a deliberate decision to build an amphitheater here, because this is a place where lots of people are coming, as Catherine described, into and out of the Roman province on a regular basis. And so to have somewhere like an amphitheater, which is this very symbol of Roman culture, where those people... Could enjoy Roman culture is probably significant. The other thing that we discovered is that when we excavated just outside the amphitheater, we did indeed find evidence for settlement really hard up against the amphitheater's turf wall. But it was confined to the third and fourth centuries. There was no earlier evidence. And the character of that, we found lots of basically things called drainage ditches and rubbish ditches, which are full of Roman detritus, Roman rubbish that was discarded. So broken pottery, animal bone, occasional finds of coins, discarded bits of metalwork and timber. And so what that's telling us is this this is not a very salubrious part of town in the third century. All this rubbish is being deposited. So it's highly likely, first of all, that the amphitheater had gone out of use because this, this is not something you want right next to an amphitheater. So it reinforces the idea that the amphitheater is an early structure, which may have gone of use out of use by the 4th century. The other thing, of course, though, is that this is, as I said earlier, at the southwestern extremity of the Roman town. And previously, our excavations were confined to the northeastern part within the area of this 3rd century fort. So we now know that right across the full extent of the Roman town of Richborough, settlement continued in whatever form, right to the end of the Roman period. So it would appear that Roman Richborough is flourishing right through the Roman period, which is something quite remarkable and something brilliant for us to have learned.
0: Yeah, I think I would have expected that as well, bearing in mind it's the starting off point for anyone wanting to come into the province, as you say. Do you think it was the first amphitheatre in Britain as
2: well? It's hard to tell. It's going to be quite possible. I mean, there's another one that was built in Roman London, in Londinium, which dates to about the early phase of it, dates to about 100 AD. But we would need some better dating evidence from the, from the amphitheatre at Richborough to be able to say so. But certainly, yes, it's one of the oldest. The other thing, of course, is there weren't very many in, in Roman Britain. There were only about 14 or 15 that we know about from the Roman province. So not only is it early, but it's quite a rare structure in Roman Britain as well.
0: And can the visitor actually see it from the gateway structure if they stand on that?
2: With the Eye of Faith, yes. But you can do more than that now. You can actually walk from the visitor centre back to the public road and cross the public road where we've installed a purpose built footpath which takes you right onto the site. So you can actually stand on the site today and as you approach it, you think you're just coming onto a low hill, but then suddenly... The Great Depression, where the arena would have been, opens out in front of you. Uh, and so you can really feel that you're actually in, a, in an amphitheater, in a, in a ball, where things would have happened in the past. And we've been able to reconstruct virtually what we think the amphitheater looked like, and we've installed a panel on site so you can pair your own imagination against what we think it would have looked like in Roman times.
0: Wow, fascinating. Let's move on to some closing questions then. For Catherine, you've been listening to all this that uh, Paul's been describing and um, there's a lot of detail and um, it's, it's really, really interesting. But uh, you're the curator, so what are your favourite objects that have been discovered from this really rich site?
1: First thing to say is that, as Paul mentioned, the most recent excavations of the amphitheatre didn't really throw up anything to add to the the most exciting and interesting individual objects that we have. There were sort of animal bones and coins and things like that, but not a lot that has made a difference given the quality of the collection that already existed. And as a result, none of the newer material has made it onto display. In terms of what we've got in the museum, it's kind of like choosing between your children. There are some absolutely incredible pieces there. Some of them are incredible because of their beauty and there are some lovely photos and things like that that will be going onto the website that people can have a look at in terms of personal favorites we've got a little brooch which is inscribed and it would have been worn by a soldier and the inscription translated into english would be if you love me i love you more and (laughs) i just love that as like this is an immediate emotional connection this is obviously a brooch that has been worn because it's been given by a particular person it's not a piece of uniform even though it would have been worn by a soldier And then there's, I mentioned the glass bowl earlier. I have a particular fondness for Roman glass. And we've got some quite nice pieces of glass on display, as well as the bowl. We've got a a Hofheim cup, which is a very, very finely blown glass drinking cup that is probably one of the earliest objects that we have on display. It would have been deposited probably not that long after the moment of invasion, actually. It's really quite early. And this sort of lovely, very fragile object that survived. And it's very much kind of go around every display case. And it's like, that's my favourite. Like, that's my favourite too. All my so favorites. it's really hard
0: for you to decide, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the experience been like for you to represent the story of Richborough? You're quite an important person.
1: It's been a privilege and a challenge. Working with this collection has been absolutely extraordinary. And working with the number of people and the number of experts that we've got to work with because of the quality of this material, is unlike any other um, excavation-based interpretation that I've done for English Heritage. It's just on a totally different scale. And that's been wonderful. And as we talked about earlier, the decision-making process has been incredibly difficult, but it's been really lovely working with so many knowledgeable, passionate people on this project. It's going to be really sad to see it go in a way.
0: But you can always come back and visit.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I've still got, as I say, got so many more things in store. I'm still desperate for more researchers to come and work on my material. There's so much more that we can find out for this site.
0: Okay, well, if there's any other PhD students listening, perhaps they'd like to get in touch with you. Oh, yeah, please do. (laughs) Yeah. Paul, what will visitors get out of visiting Richborough Roman Fort and Amphitheatre, including, of course, this fantastic new gateway?
2: Uh, A totally transformed experience. I I don't think I'm giving away any secrets when I say that the experience for the visitor was a bit tired. They didn't really get a sense of, you know, the extent and the magnificence of this place in Roman times. And so what Catherine and I and others have been doing over the past how many years? It's about three (laughs) years now. We've been working hard to put the Romans back into Richborough. And so when you go there today, you'll get a completely transformed understanding of what it meant to be, a roman at richborough in roman times but also the sort of the scale the magnificence and the importance of the place you know throughout the roman story in roman britain
0: you've been listening to the english heritage podcast next week we'll be talking about curating a different era as we look into victorian collecting
1: It's during this 19th century heyday that Audley End was an extremely lively, a very sociable
0: place, and Richard and Jane were this very kind of gregarious couple at the heart of it. Highly intellectual
1: people with a keen shared interest in natural history.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.